As uh, Joseph mentioned earlier in the service, this is the fifth Sunday at uh, Highlands. We have a few of those that come along during the course of the year, and we do something a little bit different. Still a worship service. We're going to look at God's Word in just a minute. But we try on these fifth Sundays to address a question that you have. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the year, submit those questions to us. And we take just a few minutes to address one of those questions in a conversational format again, and then we'll look at uh, God's Word. We do a lot more of this on Wednesday nights. So another plug for uh, Wednesday nights. We encourage you to come on Wednesday nights. We've had a lot of questions lately about suffering. We've had a lot of suffering. We've had a lot of suffering in our world and a lot of suffering in our community. And yet we claim to be... Christians, we profess openly before the world. Every time we come and worship, we're saying we're Christians. Um, that presents some problems for us. And there's a couple of them we'll, we'll talk about here um, for just a, just a few minutes. The first is intellectual. It's either you or someone you know comes up and says, Now, wait a minute, Christian. Your God is loving, kind, powerful, merciful. Gracious? How can that be in a world full of suffering? The intellectual question. The second question is more personal. Maybe a person who's a Christian or not a Christian who would say something like this. I don't know what God is doing in my life. Why is he bringing so much suffering into my life? I thought he loved me. Lee, what, what about the, uh, we'll give you the easy one. How about the intellectual question? Um, uh, so, Lee, uh, somebody asks yes. you, uh, soon to be pastor, soon to be ordained, Lee, um, uh, pastor at, uh, at the Highlands Presbyterian Church, uh, how can a good and powerful God allow so much suffering? And I, I can't believe in a God like that. Yeah, uh, great question, uh, hard question. But it's important to remember that right out of the gate, that abandoning belief in God because of suffering doesn't make suffering any easier to handle. In fact, I think it makes it harder. Tragedy and human suffering is a universal problem. Everyone's touched by it. There are still tsunamis in the world if we don't believe in God. There's still cancer in the world if you don't believe in God. There's still pain. There's still um, madmen that take guns into all kinds of public places and do awful things. And so simply by saying, I can't believe in God, because this happens, doesn't make it any easier. It might fill a personal or intellectual void for a time, but it really doesn't help. There's still issues of evil and suffering. And, you know, the intellectual problem really centers around, it's still a heart problem, but it still centers around a seeming pointlessness to suffering. Why? Why does this happen? It doesn't make sense. And because we are finite creatures, just because we can't see a reason why something has happened, doesn't mean that there isn't one. It doesn't mean that God isn't at work in it somehow. But we tend to get around this, I don't, doesn't make sense to me, intellectually or in my heart, why I got cancer, or why my child had this happen to them, or why I lost my job. Therefore, there must not be a reason. But the classic example from Scripture is the story of Joseph and his brothers. You remember Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. 
And he experienced all kinds of pain and suffering and trial. And what he said at the end of it was remarkable. When he was finally rescued and brought out and had a position of leadership, and he said to his brothers, he could have scorned them, he could have rejected them, but he said, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Which proved that God was in control. He was at work. But it also proved that though it wasn't good that it happened, God still brought good from it. He was still at work. He still cared. He still loved Joseph. And so all the time, the scriptures are affirming both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We sin. We have a sin problem. But intellectually, it's important to remember that just because suffering seems pointless doesn't mean that it is. Mm -hmm. And just because you reject or abandon belief in God doesn't do away with a problem. I think it makes it harder. Because where do you get this sense that this shouldn't happen? Yeah, the whole issue of justice often comes in. Justice, love. We say things, don't we? Don't we intuitively we say, this can't be right. Mm. There's something wrong with it. There's a premise there that someone who questions God often doesn't recognize. They're borrowing capital from a Christian worldview and saying there's something that's unjust about this. Mm. How could a good God? Well, where does your concept of good and justice come from? Mm. The fact that you're made in the image of God. So, again, yeah, and again, it doesn't prove that God doesn't exist just because we can't see a purpose. Just because we can't see a purpose doesn't mean right. there can't be one. But we know it's at the heart. It's not an intellectual. Though we debate it in the classrooms, it's still a heart issue. So what do we do with someone who says, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know why this, is suffer- this suffering is happening to me. Mm-hmm. How do we answer the personal side you of it? You know, I, I want to I make a plea I begin to respond to that and make a plea as a pastor. My first plea is for humility. Uh, When we enter into very difficult times in our lives, the tendency is to say, I need to blame somebody. Or we might point, you remember when the Twin Towers went down, unfortunately, unfortunately, there were Christians who very confidently said publicly why those Twin Towers went down. God is fill-in-the-blank. We don't know. There's, there's an element of... Let me put it this way. For those of you who have been married uh, for any length of time, uh, do you completely understand your husband? Do you completely understand your wife? Do you completely understand... Oh, my wife's here. I gotta be, do you, you completely guys, understand... This time. Look, the point is relational, personal. We don't even understand the people that we live with. I don't completely understand my wife. She doesn't completely understand me. There's always an element of mystery in any relationship. Embrace it. And mostly in your relationship with God, my goodness, there's a mystery there. But he calls us to trust it. So let's be humble. Let's also recognize, secondly, that on every page of the Bible, there's somebody suffering. Almost every page. Suffering gets right to the heart of of the Christian life. We're told to rejoice in it, to walk through it, um, to recognize that it's a part of of life and of of who we are. And the the other thing that I would emphasize again in the time that we have, you know why we hurt? You know why we suffer most of the time? Because we are made for love. What do I mean? How much of the suffering that you have experienced in your life has something to do with a relationship with somebody? You're watching somebody suffer. 
you miss somebody this Christmas because they died last Christmas. A relationship with somebody that is just kind of shriveling you up because it's fractured. The the very reason why we struggle with it the way we do, I understand that there's physical suffering, but so often it's going through it, watching someone that's going through it. So often love is right at the heart and the center of it. Relationship is right at the heart and the center of it. And as we're going to see in just a moment, we have a God who is right at the heart and the center of it. Jesus Christ enters into that suffering with us and walks with us, but also does something about it. Yeah, that's piggybacking off of that. I mean, Christianity is unique among world religions in that Jesus Christ, we're claiming that God himself knows something firsthand of pain. He knows something firsthand of suffering. We do not have a great high priest We do not have a God who says, boy, I bet that's horrible, but I've never tasted it. I've never seen it. Mm. We have a God who understands. He's been there. He knows. Mm. He can empathize. It's not just something we say and speak in our creed that Jesus knows what you're going through. He really does. He experienced loneliness. He experienced rejection. He experienced physical suffering and pain and temptation. And he really does know. And no other religion... Mm says that about God. And we don't say it because it's something that's pie in the sky or something that makes us feel better. We say it because it's true. God himself has said, I know what you're going through and I have loved you enough not to leave you in it. But he is on a dramatic plan of redemption and rescue that is bringing us all home so that one day we can say, you know, Mm -hmm. this was awful that it happened, but I'm so glad that God did what he did through it. Yeah, just one brief, brief comment to, to that. You know, so often we're looking for a principle. You know, what's the principle of working through suffering? God doesn't give us a principle. He gives us a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you know suffering and you have known suffering in the past as a Christian, you also know, you know that Jesus Christ will and does walk with you through these things, although we, not, we might not be able to explain why you're in that particular situation. Lee, Lee, would you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we don't know why things happen the way they do, but we know that you are sovereign. We know that you're over them. We know that just because bad things happen, it doesn't mean that you don't care. We thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who entered our flesh, who took on what it means to be human beings, and yet he did it all without sin so that we who were formerly enemies are now called children. We get to call you Abba, Father. And so we pray that as we turn to your word now, and as Brad explains from John 11, exactly what you would have us to hear, we pray that by your spirit, you would encourage us, that you would mold us, and that you would fashion our intellect to, be, to better see your work and your wonder around the world. And we pray all of this in your son's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, and let's see what Jesus says. Let's see what Jesus does. Let's see what Jesus, uh, how Jesus answers the same question with regard to suffering. Lord, we do pray that as we read your word, we recognize that this word is living and it's active and it's as sharp as a sword. 
and it pierces our hearts. That is your promise. So, Lord, we pray that you would keep that promise, send your spirit, and invade our hearts by the power of your word, the working of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at, uh, for a few minutes this morning, John 11, verses 20 through 36. John chapter 11, verses 20 through 36. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Is God's word. Did you see the opening ceremony of the Olympics on Friday night? Anybody? I don't follow the details of the Olympics very closely usually, but I usually watch the opening ceremony. Interesting. It's always, you know, a cultural statement about the particular place and the world in which we live. And this was no different, very British. Uh, but I always, I, I'm always, I have to admit, I'm always moved by the parade of nations. 
one nation after another coming out and doing the circle and then winding up in the middle. And they're from all over the world, all different colors and backgrounds and religions and very, very diverse, all kinds of, of people. And they come marching in and they have their flags and they're, and they're smiling and they're celebrating and they end up in the center. And it, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture of diversity. And the, the priorities and interests of uh, different cultures. But I was struck, um, in, particularly in thinking about the reality of suffering in our lives. You know, what a contrast. You notice when you walk, watch those folks come out, they're young, they're beautiful, they're full of anticipation, and they've got their whole lives ahead of them. They're excited, they're healthy, they're strong, they're fast. And I thought it was very poignant that the closing of the opening ceremony, they were all singing, you know, those profound words as they were joining. You know, thousands of people in the stadium and probably millions on TV watching, they all joined in to sing those profoundly life-changing theological Words, na 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 Hey Jude. But you know what that song is about? I guess it might be evidence of my misspent youth that I know, but I grew up in Dallas. I saw everybody in concert, I'll tell you sometime. I saw everybody in concert. Um, Paul McCartney wrote that song to comfort a five-year-old boy in the middle of a divorce. His parents were getting a divorce because his father had had an affair, and that's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is right at the heart, and they didn't really know it, but right at the heart of this ceremony is brokenness. fallenness, sin, tears. And every one of those athletes, every one of those thousands of people, every one of the millions of people that were watching, and every one of you is at some point in your life, if you haven't already, going to experience a life-changing encounter with suffering. And you will not be the same after you have gone through it. You will not, I promise. My, uh, my friend Derek Thomas used to say, as people grow older, they get bitter or better. It's coming for them. It's coming for you. It is a reality. So <laughs> we could say a lot of things about suffering now. But I want to pull back and I want to emphasize in the time that we have this morning just two basics that everybody needs, whether they're a Christian or not. Two basics that everybody needs, whether you're a new Christian or been a Christian for a long time. They both go together and they come together in Jesus. Truth and tears. You can remember that. When you're comforting somebody, when you're going through something, when you're facing a great trial, you know what you need? You need truth and tears. You know what your family member needs? Truth and tears. 
You know what your neighbor needs, your co-worker, your best friend, your classmate, truth and tears. We, know, we need to know the truth, the truth about us and the truth about Jesus and our tears and the tears of Jesus. That's what we need. I think according to this passage, God's Word. What is the truth about us? We didn't read down through 38, but we saw it in 33 when Jesus saw her weeping and those around her weeping, talking about Mary over the death of her brother, Lazarus. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And then in 38, it also says deeply moved or something like that in your translation. Unfortunately, there are a lot of translations, I'm sure, different Bibles even in here. I want to look at the one Greek word briefly, the verb behind that. It's, it's just one word. And it might very well tell us that Jesus is deeply moved by watching these folk in their tears and sorrow and sadness and loss. Maybe that's what's moving him. But if we look a little bit closer at, at the meaning of this word, we need to get at what's going on here. Why, why is Jesus deeply moved? It's essential to understanding this passage and to understanding suffering, suffering in your life. You know what the, this word literally means? It's used a number of times outside the Bible. It means the snorting of a wild animal. It refers to the... Now, this doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's not. Jesus is angry. He's angry. You could even say Jesus is enraged. Is he angry at the people in their sorrow and weeping and loss? No. There's one translation, there are a couple of translations that, that I think do a good job with this, and I don't always recommend this translation, but he gets it, he gets it here, the message, Eugene Peterson's translation. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, deep anger welled up within him. That's 33. 38, when Je when, then Jesus, then Jesus, the anger again welling up within in him arrived at the tomb and, and so on. Anger is, is, is welling up. What is he angry about? I love what one commentator, how one commentator summarized this. He summarized this as furious love. Jesus, we talked about it over here. We get angry with it, so does Jesus. Jesus is enraged about sin, death, and suffering. And he loves us so much that he's furious. at sin and death and suffering. But folks, that's the truth about us. We live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled and plunged us and entire creation into brokenness, tears, suffering, sorrow, and pain. And Jesus knows that. Jesus sees it. And he's 
angry about it. So what is the truth about Jesus? Another commentator says this, For the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. The violent tyranny of death is placed before his eyes and he is prepared to do battle with it and conquer it. It's interesting, Mary and Martha both say the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But they get two different responses. As Jesus comes to Martha, he's a teacher. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, this is what is true about me and what I have done. And by the way, that's the verse that I read right out of the, right out of the shoot, right at the outset of every funeral service I ever do. Because it's so essential. Jesus teaches Martha the truth about who he is and what he came to do. I'm the resurrection and the life. I know you're saying that your brother's going to be raised again at the last day. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of, the new, of new life is in me now, in faith in me now. You can have it now. You can have the peace now. You can have the salvation now in me. I'm here now. He's here now. And then he says to Martha, and he says to us, do you believe that? Maybe we should even say, can you believe that? That's the truth about Jesus, that he teaches to Martha. I see the sin. I'm here to kill it. I'm here to bring about the death of death through the life of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's move to tears. I love this. Um, People don't often hear truth without tears. If you're just there to tell somebody the truth... Mary is broken down. She's weeping. You know, the tendency to walk away from a situation like this in our, sometimes with our own sinful nature is to say, you know, he just needs to suck it up. She just needs to get with She just needs to memorize the Bible, go to church, stand on the promises, trust in Jesus, fix her eyes on Christ, have, have more faith. That's not what Jesus does. There's a difference between a stoic and a sufferer. And maybe you've been told that, look, you, you know, if you're a faithful Christian, you get through it and you pull yourself together. Come on, have faith, trust, pull yourself together. 
Um, th- this can be hard. It can be hard th- recognizing our tears, the tears of others, and being alongside them and being personally present can be very difficult, especially for fixers, analyzers. You know, I remember as a, as a newly married young man, when my wife first said to me, Brad, I don't want answers, I want you. Just be quiet and be with me. I still remember that. Just be here with me. Just share my tears. That's what Jesus does. You don't have to say anything. You know, as a pastor, you know, I'm supposed to have answers. I don't have answers much of the time to stuff. I don't know. But I can be here with you. And you can be here with me. And most importantly, Christ is here with both of us. Um, I'm going to put it this way. (laughs) Suffering people don't need protocol. They don't often need what's appropriate. They need presence. They need personal presence. They don't need formulas. They often need fellowship. But I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. You are speaking volumes with your presence. Just be there like Jesus. Just be there. Our tears. But Jesus, this, the tears of Jesus are, are just, just fly off this page, don't they? The, this, this reality of Jesus weeping. Jesus uh, wept. What does Jesus actually say? He really doesn't say much. He enters into uh, suffering. He joins us in our suffering. Psalm 56, 8 says this about God. You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Every hair is numbered. You remember every tear. He knows suffering. He tells Martha, this is what I came to do. Conquer death, conquer sin. I will accomplish that. But then... And if you've been a believer for any length of time and you have trusted in Christ and run to him, you know that Jesus is there. You might not have all the answers, but you do have the person. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As of one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne all our griefs and carried all our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But, and this is Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. 
Again, this is true, but it's also relational language. We see in Jesus the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears that come together in Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot once said, and this is a, a lot of people have actually said this, but it's good. Um, joy is not the absence of suffering, it's the presence of God. This can be very overwhelming. We don't always have the answers, but there's Jesus ministering truth and tears and calling you to do the same. A few years ago, I went to see a doctor, and he sent me to another doctor and didn't tell me where he was sending me. No doctor jokes right now. But there I was, driving down the road, pulled in the parking lot, went to the, the, the address where he told me to go, pulled in, and there was a big sign on the front of the building. It said, East Texas, I was living in East Texas at the time, East Texas Cancer Clinic. And my immediate thought was, it must be around back. No, I was at the right place. And I walked in, and I kept saying to myself, this can't be the right place. There's people with cancer here. There's children with cancer. There's, there's people of all ages here with cancer. Why'd they send me here? And I walked up to the desk and they said, we're expecting you. And they came out and sat down with me and began to comfort me. And I saw the doctor and saw the doctor for three months and had a number of tests and they thought I had cancer. Blood tests every week and... Uh, taking lots of blood and having all kinds of scans and everything else. And this went on. I felt bad for about five months. I do remember this, and I should say this. The, the elders at Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas, uh, gathered around me one day and, and laid their hands on me and prayed for me. And I don't discount that in this process. In fact, that may have been what turned things around for me. James encourages us to call upon the elders, for us to take the initiative and call upon the elders to do that. Anyway, I'm fine. I'm here. I don't have cancer. I think what happened is I went through three, four months of tests and they tested it out of existence. (laughs) I don't know. It just went away. But the, the, the memory that never goes away in the midst of that... I was a young pastor at the time learning what it was like to experience suffering and walking through with people experiencing suffering. I remember a scan. One day I went in and had a scan. I was laying on the conveyor belt, you know, the big white donut and the conveyor belt. And you, you go in and, and, and uh, you know, you're the only one in there, obviously. And there's something in there that only you can see. At least at the East Texas Cancer Clinic. Uh, the conveyor belt went in and I looked up and there I was by myself and I saw faces, smiling faces of people of all ages with cancer. 
they had put, probably not supposed to do that, but they did it anyway. They had put pictures up in there. And, and if you're laying there getting your scans and tests, you're looking at these people with cancer with smiling faces. And I actually brought the page, the first service that I, that I kept. I printed it off and I, I didn't bring it second service. But right in the center was this page with all these faces around it. And some of you have heard this, no doubt. But with the scan, with the faces, with the smiles, with the suffering, uh, this page said, things that cancer cannot do. And it listed these. It, it cannot cripple love, shatter hope, corrode faith, destroy peace, kill relationships, suppress memories, silence courage, invade the soul, or steal eternal life. And I would add, because of the truth and tears of Jesus, and only through the, tr- the truth and the tears of Jesus. I'll close with this. Um, we don't do this, we don't write these things much anymore, but in the old days, uh, during the Reformation, come, and come to the Reformation class this, this fall, we used to write catechisms to teach children, people of all ages. And one of my favorites is the Heidelberg Catechism. And the very first question, this sums up everything we've been talking about today. I'm going to close with this. The very first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to this. Go Google it. Look it up. Post it on your refrigerator. That I'm not my own but belong with body and soul both in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled as we come before you with questions about suffering. The why questions, the how questions, the if questions. But we do know for sure, even in the midst of all of these unanswered questions, we know that it's not. We, it's not because you don't love us that we're suffering. Because of the truth that you give us. Of your anger and rage at death and conquering that very death and being victorious and calling us to believe in you. 
and then sharing our tears, walking into our tears, experiencing our tears with us right now, today. By the power of your word and spirit. So Lord, as we sing, as we uh, go out to our families and friends and into the community, Lord, we pray that we would go out with the sure and certain knowledge that you, Lord Jesus, are going with us everywhere we go and you're walking with us through the deepest, darkest valleys. You are there. And you will come back in glory. You will dry every tear. And we will thirst no more. And we will hurt no more. And we will suffer no more. And we'll be in glory forever uh, in your presence for all eternity. Oh Lord, help us to be a remembering people of all of your great blessings. We pray these things as has been prayed earlier in the service in the name of Jesus Christ who has come. Such a great distance for us. Amen.